This show is part of the Headstuff Podcast Network, a hub for the creative and the curious. Shows are produced in association with Headstuff and the Podcast Studios Dublin. Find out more or become a member at headstuffpodcasts.com. Hi. Hi, Paul. And everyone at home, uh, you're very welcome to the FNI Rap Chat podcast. Yes, correct. Um, today we have an editor from Galway on it, and um, he's done a variety of work between sports documentaries, um, regular documentaries, uh, feature films, short films, TV, uh, light entertainment. Um, most recently, he was the editor on, on Colleen Kuhn. Hoorah! Um, Crossing my fingers here, hopefully uh, soon to be Ireland's uh, nominee for the Oscars. We'll see how that works out. Um, it's such a great film. And also he was editor on North Circular, which is a musical documentary, which is currently in cinemas. Um, and I would encourage people to go out there and support it and watch it because it's a beautiful artistic piece of work. Yeah, it's gorgeous. It's um, absolutely gorgeous. And his name is John Murphy. <laughs> So yeah, I, I was like, we didn't actually name was... him, do we? I had this idea in my head. I was like, I'm going to name all, name the things that he had done, and then give him the name at the end. And I almost didn't give him his name. Um, but yeah, really nice sound. Uh, well, man. welcome back. Oh, thanks. Yeah, yeah. I uh, I just you've been busy working, and that's always the best the best excuse, right? I, I, yeah, I, I don't know. Like it's kind of just things scheduling wise just didn't work out for a long time. Yeah. And even when I first got in contact with uh, with John, he was. Um, down the west of the country mm. and then he got in contact with me recently and said oh I'm going to be in Dublin and I replied to his email saying oh well I'm actually in the west now um, so it was one of those things where we were sort of missing each other but it was great to have him in today Sod's law. Yeah. very nice man lots of experience editing and uh, a nice bit of insight for you listeners and various yeah, particularly aspects. editors um, you know this is one for you for everybody obviously but obviously particularly for editors um, just you know, in itself, like how important editing actually is, um, just deep dive a little bit on that is, um, is is a rarity. We've had a couple of editors on before, Nathan Nugent and one or two others, but um, you know, like it's one of those not to miss type episodes, I would say, um, I, particularly because of lived experience as well. It's always great to have somebody from the west. Yeah, and he's like, as an editor, he's very busy, and there's a reason he's very busy. His work is very good. Yeah, I'm surprised they could find him. He made the cut, you can say. <laughs> so listen, guys, if you want to support the show, um, you can head on over to buymeacoffee.com forward slash FNI and become a member. Uh, we'd love to have you. It keeps the roof over our studio and helps us with our office and little odds and ends. And, um, you know, it's really, really, really appreciated. Um, this podcast is available on Google Podcasts, uh, um, Apple Podcasts, uh, Spotify, and on the Headstuff Podcast Network or Headstuff Plus. Um, so listen, if we, if we don't see you before Christmas, Merry Christmas, everybody. Oh, could this be the last one before Christmas? Oh, it, well. it may well be. Oh, well, well yes. Molly Connor to everyone out there. <laughs> Very happy Christmas. Um, so yeah, guys, have a great one. Um, thanks a million for listening uh, over the last... Uh, calendar year another year this is our fifth year doing the podcast can you believe uh, massive thanks year, as a famous man in the white suit once said it's what, what indeed what what is another year mm-hmm. um so listen thanks a million thanks to sean and uh, remy and 
uh, Mark Monks, our uh, sound uh, engineer. I couldn't remember what he did for us, but now it just has uh, heavily lied on my head with the crown of, of uh, responsibility. Um, and uh, of course, Paul Webster, uh, Mia and Sean, if I haven't mentioned them before, and uh, everybody else that helps uh, helps the, the F&I pot simmer over in my tool. Have a great Oh, oh, oh. <laughs>
it's a documentary about uh, the arts uh, it's there's kind of a the arts comes to give you a freedom to kind of go and do kind of whatever you want with it as long as it's about the art and as long as it's not a biopic and that it's um, uh, and that it, it's more experimental in form than say a television doc on the arts would be so you it's a great scheme they give you a certain amount of money and it's it's ring fenced and which means that you know there's no other funders involved the money you have is the money that you have and you have to go and make it for that and they, everyone leaves you alone and you come back and has to be ready for the dublin film festival so um how to tell a secret which is also out at the moment mm. that's another one of them uh, okay. ghost of bagatonia which is, is coming out uh, shortly that's another one and um They've been a great scheme. Like they've they've given some some great films, great filmmakers, Tiger Sullivan, Paul Duan, Niall McCann, uh, Kira Kira McCormick. You know, the really great filmmakers have all kind of done these in the last couple of years, and I think there's there it's a really really great scheme. So uh, Luke was going for it. Uh, Luke McManus, the director of North Circular, and he asked me would I kind of be involved, and I was in, he I was involved from the kind of pitch uh, part of it. Uh, it was during COVID when we when he was pitching it, and you know, Luke wanted to. He had that. He had an idea that was floating around for a while, and it was kind of he could. He lives in the north, on, off the North Circular. It was COVID. Mm-hmm. You know, it was attractive uh, as a film, but also as a, an achievable thing during COVID as well. So yeah. I, I think that definitely helped. And so I would have been involved from the start. I, like I helped. Uh, uh, I recorded some stuff for a pitch document. So we had like a video pitch document that went in. And I just kind of like said, this is why I want to be involved in it. And I'd done a few other things for Luke. I'd done two, uh, I'd done two documentaries for him. So, you know, um, I was really glad to be involved in it. And then uh, I, I kind of started cutting it around November last year. Um, but before then, I'd been kind of in, you know, myself and Luke were kind of chatting about it. And, you know, um, so, yeah. Uh, it's interesting because... Uh, I think at the Q and A in the Dublin Film Festival, what I what I my understanding of it was like Luke had mentioned that it was around COVID time, and I didn't realize it was through such a sort of a predefined sort of scheme that he had pitched for the money. So I just had this idea of Luke in his house, kind of going, oh, "I need to go out and do something," and kind of going out along the North Circular Road. This is before I'd seen the film and kind of recording what was happening around him. And then I saw it and I was like, "Oh my God, there's so much in it," and like such really well selected characters to show different elements different aspects of life that kind of all take place along that road and also the strength of community and like the way that yourself and luke have managed to kind of show the different types of communities that people can kind of get involved in and then also the threats to those communities it's like it's it's a really fantastic film and it's kind of like it's so beautifully made and the kind of film that you can just kind of sit with and spend time with and kind of allow to wash over you it's not like maybe I suppose it's because of the type of scheme that is done under um, and the, the particular focus of that. But like it's not a sort of investigative uh, documentary where you're watching kind of going trying to follow the twists and turns. It's more like a kind of like you're sort of just getting to meet people. It's almost like as if like you as a viewer are walking along the North Circular Road and just meeting people like and who are kind of willing to chat to you and tell you their story. And then you move on and the whole thing is accompanied by this be- beautiful music that was recorded either in location or some of it in uh, the, the pub and running by the cobblestone. Sure, yeah. I mean, uh, Luke, you know, like I said, he lives on the North Circular. So to a certain degree, because he was involved in that community himself, he felt a responsibility to the community. You know, he, he couldn't mess it up because he'd have to move house, as yeah. he says himself. Um, but it also just meant that he was able to embed himself in, in 
you know, in communities, he could try go down kind of blind alleys uh, with stories and then kind of come back out and say, you know, and, and kind of spend time with people, get to know people. He recorded a lot of audio interviews, you know, just in people's uh, houses. And some of them ended up in the film, but some of them right. became the basis as, uh, of like, well, that was really interesting. You know, you should go and shoot that. And, you know, that that's kind of what he did. And, and um, yeah, and then it, 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 there was this musical element to it as well. I mean, Luke describes the film as a uh, not less a music documentary and more documentary musical in that mm -hmm. the songs that feature in the film serve a narrative purpose. So when we were in the edit of it, it was very much we were trying to find songs that kind of reflected what each section was about. And, you know, it's 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 an 84 minute film. And like you said, it is kind of like walking the, the length of the North Circle, which is according to Google Maps takes 86 minutes. Uh -huh. So <laughs> it, it kind of uh, worked out. But the idea was that thing that you mentioned of like it would, it would feel like that you were kind of eavesdropping on bits of conversations as you walk down the road. So we were just getting fragments of things and the idea would be that it would kind of all coalesce into uh, an overall thing. So and that reflected in both the stories that were selected, the bits of interview and audio that we used, the music that was selected that all drove the narrative, then also the shots and that, you know, there were very particular uh, shots chosen to kind of depict tone and stuff. Mm -hmm. And then also you know, it was black and white and four three and academy yeah. ratio and all that. So, <laughs> yeah, it was very all very deliberate. Yeah. Uh, was the so there was the four by three academy ratio a decision from the start? Yeah, uh, from from the pitch. Yeah. Oh, okay. From from, okay. from way back. Um, yeah, I mean, it, Luke had his he, he, he kind of the idea there was that we the film we wanted the film to evoke. You know, it's a film that's set in the modern day, but we wanted it to evoke the past. So it kind of was set in black and white. It had that kind of narrow uh, academy ratio as well that kind of just hints at archive, but without actually using archive. Mm -hmm, because yeah. it, and, and part of that was to do with the songs that were in it as well, that they, you know, Irish folk music and Irish, the folk singing tradition, these are songs sometimes they're written 200, 300 years ago. But we found that we were able to, find songs that spoke of the now as well and, and even songs that were written in the 40s and 50s by Dominic Behan and those guys like they were protesting about poverty and and housing uh, in Dublin in the 40s and they're like, just as relevant as they are today yeah. you know so we didn't have to kind of go into the past to analyze those stories it was the modern day guys you know that were singing in Cobblestone every Sunday or in Walters every Sunday they're like they were doing the same thing, you know, that those guys were doing. And like from a practical point of view, like were you in the edit kind of getting bits together and going, oh, you know what would be perfect here, this particular song, and then kind of making a list. And did Luke then go out and film those songs being sung? Or was it a case of you just having had having everything and trying to piece the pieces together of what you had? Well, Luke went to there's a night called Lar the night before Larry got stretched, which is a singing night in the cobblestone. And he went to the first one back after Covid and he was kind of inspired by that and he went back then with richard kendrick the dp who shot it and uh they you know they made note of certain songs and then they talked to some of the artists and said look you know can you is there any song you know if we were to come back and film if you could if there's some songs about dublin you want to sing or maybe if there's one about kind of military that you want to sing and so some people came up with their own ones and then okay. they just kind of fitted perfectly um some ones we had to really struggle to kind of fit into the film but once we found their home it was perfect and then there was other ones that we dropped and then the other practical thing about them is that you know 
a lot of these songs, like the the Van Diemen's Land, the song is in in the film. Like it's about seven minutes long. <laughs> it's got about fifteen verses, you know. So like, like, like any good song. Yeah. So uh, the challenge there was, you know, to try and cut it in a way that it felt that we gave due respect to the song, but still somehow met it only be a minute, two minutes long yeah. with three verses as opposed to you know six or seven. Um, and then also, I think that that. Myself and Luke talked about it as well. Um, I, you know, listening to it kind of interactive. Um, I can't think of the right word, but I, you know, I can strongly about it that, um, you know, I, we wanted it to feel like it all one continuous take. You know, that it was, it wasn't a thing that was recorded five times or five different cameras. Mm-hmm. You kind of had to feel like you're in that environment where it's in a singing circle or something like that. It only happened once. So we never really shot anything twice. door of a hospital the camera the next camera shot isn't the other side of the door as they walk in where it's clearly fake you know so it, it i think you should never feel in docs that it it should feel like it's happening live yeah. so that was the thing that was for me that was important about that and you know you, you richard kendrick shooting it is going to look amazing so i, I was going to say there's a shot in the cobblestone during one of those sessions where it looks like a caravaggio like the lights coming in the window that's behind the whole collection of people singing and it's just it's so gorgeous and like I'm, there's a part of me kind of going I wonder what that looked like in colour but maybe I don't want to know what it looked like in colour it's just like it's so beautiful in the black and white and a really sort of like yeah it's very it's, it's like it, the whole thing is actually beautifully shot in terms of like the sort of variety of shots and um, be they kind of shots of you know a, a decomposing bird's body on the floor of what is an old church or um, or like just kind of the shadows of people as they walk along the footpaths. They're just so beautifully taken and also really well matched with what's going on. There's a bit towards the end. Gemma Dunleavy is talking about loads of her family members living kind of in the kind of this general vicinity. And she refers to it as like being like a constellation. And the shot you've chosen to use for that is her walking down the street. And the, in the background behind her is... A, a construction crane with like lights on it that are kind of all out of focus and it's almost like stars in the night as well so i'm assuming that wasn't an accident no that was a very deliberate choice <laughs> yes yeah um yeah no i mean the black black and shooting it in black and white and paddy jordan shot a lot of that as well so richard kendrick shot the stuff in the cobblestone paddy jordan and luke and uh, and jamie uh J- jamie i've got his surname uh, uh shot a lot of the exterior stuff and um you know, the shooting in black and white allowed, you know, Luke made a very deliberate choice of when in the day to shoot mm-hmm. so that you get the shadows. A lot of it was shot in the winter so that it would have all that. Um, those kind of, you know, like trees in the winter is very crisp and, you know, uh, the shadows really work very well. So, yeah, there was a few things like the second we heard that Gemma say that, you know, we knew we had a shot of her going over a bridge with all these lights on it. And we're like, well, yeah, that doesn't make sense. <laughs> you know, you know uh, we had to do it. Yeah. Um, when you're telling a story, this is an impossible question to answer, but which do you think is more important, the visuals or the sound? Well, that is a difficult one to answer. What I would say is like they're both 
like very important, but I think an, an audience finds it harder to live with poor sound mm -hmm. than poor visuals. And, you know, like one of my all time favorite uh, feature documentaries is a movie called Dear Zachary, just incredible, incredible movie, which is an amazing story. But technically, it's a disaster. Like it looks terrible and sounds quite mediocre, but it it works because the story is important. So I think if, as long as the story works, those, those technical things kind of fade into the background. I do think, though, that if you had to choose one, I think way more important to have good sound because people just don't put, won't put up with it. Whereas they put up with kind of dodgy visuals if the story is good enough. Um, but if the sound isn't good enough, it's almost harder to follow the story. Uh, yeah. Much harder. Yeah, yeah. much harder. And it's so, it's so funny, like, I think a lot of uh, kind of maybe younger filmmakers might be kind of thinking, oh, I want to buy X, Y or Z type camera and kind of going and I spend all my money on this camera. And actually, the sound is really a secondary consideration. When in fact, it's as you said, it's so important. And like that's where, like, say, if Luke was going around to people's houses and doing audio interviews, like so much of that if, that, if any of that made it into the final documentary, like you could couple that with just random shots and never show the people involved in the actual interviews and you'd have the story being told as uh, like 100 as well yeah 100 yeah. yeah i mean it's like you know it's the same thing a story is key and you know you, you get you record it as best you can and you kind of worry about the aesthetic you know like editors tend to judge sh like shots not necessarily based on the aesthetics there are certain scenarios where you do that but mostly i mean this is from my own experience anyways i i judge shots based on their usefulness and how you how what defines how useful it is isn't necessarily how beautiful it is. I mean, you might be making a beautiful se sequence with lots of beautiful shots, and then its usefulness is that it's beautiful. Mm. Whereas actually, sometimes it might be a really ugly shot, but it can you know in the corner of the shot there might be some important information, and you know that's what you use it for. It, so its value is on that, and that applies across drama or documentary. Like it's you know if, if the shot has information in it that's valuable then that's more important than whether it looks good or not. Yeah. Um, it, but there, like I said, there, is, there are, it's important for the films to, you should aim to have it look good, but you shouldn't necessarily, I mean, that's my own opinion. Like you, you shouldn't judge it by that criteria solely. Yeah. And so, okay, well, just one final question about North Circular. Like, I know you said you were involved sort of from the beginning in terms of being involved in the pitch and stuff, but say when Luke comes to you with whatever footage that he has, what is your approach? Do you say to him, like, do you just have a look at it and try to figure out where you think the story is? Or does you does you kind of do you kind of watch through it with Luke and kind of get some guidance from him? Is it all to do with maybe how much time there is? It's a combination of all those things. I mean, uh, Luke had a very clear idea of what he wanted to be, uh, what he wanted it to be. Uh, so, you know, my job in that scenario is just to kind of remind him of that every so often and, and to kind of just keep tipping away at it and kind of show him stuff as it's coming along offer opinions, offer advice. But, you know, like he's driving, he's, he's driving the, the ship, as it were, you know. So like oh, you know, your job is to just kind of keep it ticking over. We didn't have a huge amount of time to cut it. It was like eight weeks, which is very, very short time for a feature documentary. I mean, usually it's kind of 20 weeks, mm -hmm. especially um, with so many different characters and kind of mini mini stories. It's almost like there's kind of it's harder to kind in, of in some ways that was a bit of a blessing, actually, because okay it was so chapterized that you could actually do right. Well, next three days, I'm go just going to do this first 10 minutes in Stony Batter. I'm going to do the 10 minutes in, in Fibsra and get that done. Whereas if you're doing a, um, 
you know, like, again, if you're doing a feature documentary that had, you know, like, following someone over four, three or four years, you know, like, that, you're, you're There are many more options. Yeah. It's, just, yeah. it's yeah. much, much tougher, yeah. Um, I said that was my last question. This is my last question. Is there, there's a shot of people playing cricket around, uh, towards the start of the documentary, where we're also kind of hearing about the military um, connotations and the connections to, to the North Circular Road. Is there the sound of a cannon firing when someone hits a cricket ball? With I think the bat? so. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I mean, nice, Kill, nice Kill, little touch. Killian yeah. Fitzgerald did the sound. On, uh, okay. There, okay. there was. Uh, I think we did do that in the offline as well. But yes, Killian did, and he did an amazing job because you know all the music and everything, and as well, it's all put together very, very well. Um, okay, so we'll jump backwards now. And um, can you tell me? Do you know how you got interested in becoming an editor? Um, kind of happened by accident to a certain degree. I mean, I did film and television in, in GMIT in Galway. Um, and without any real particular design on what department I wanted to be in, I just kind of felt like it was something I, I want, or like a world I wanted to be in. And um, we had an editing lecture and she took, she went on maternity leave when we were in third year. And uh, the guy that replaced her, a uh, great editor called James Finlan, uh, James kind of, I got on very well with him and he, 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 you know, even though I didn't necessarily have a great competency or for editing, you know, wasn't necessarily that evident, but he could see that I was good with computers and I kind of understood how to solve problems. And I, I just, he kind of, I guess I struck him as a reliable enough guy to be an assistant editor. So, um, I started working with him as an assistant editor, myself and, uh, Dahi Keen, the two of us were working as his assistant for a while. And then, um, this is after you finished in GMIT, is it? Yeah, just kind of doing little odd jobs for him, and then he was he was he he was uh, going to do a short, uh, like a it was like a film based short, and he had to pull out for personal reasons, and he just kind of said John will do it, and I'd never really done any editing really before then, and then I just kind of went and bluffed my way through that, and that was kind of my first gig, and then James ended up um, directing the pilot of Killing Scully, and. He asked me to cut it. It was all very low budget. Like, I should, you know, I was 21. Like, I really shouldn't have been doing it. And then that got commissioned. And then um, I came back for, you know, like season two and three of that. And, and, and so just say, kind of started from there then, you know. Uh, say the film base short and you've been kind of thrown in there and you're trying to just get by and kind of not mess it up. Or when that's finished... Like what? What have you learned from that process? Do you come out of that process thinking, "All oh, right, okay, this is actually something that I can do"? Yeah, well, actually, I'll go back like a tiny bit before that. I, I did. Um, uh, there's a short called Neighborhood Watch, which by Eamon Little. Uh, that um, it was, it was a, again another. It was a film center uh, short, and I was working in a record store in Galway just after I finished college, and I went and did. I was third AD on that, and. I had been working in the record store for like two years all through college and I, and I was very comfortable there. You know, it was great. It was Galway. Like it was 2000. Was it Zhivago? Zhivago. Okay. Yes. <laughs> and uh, it, was, it was, you know, it was grand. Like uh, and I did this short. I was 30D. I was directing traffic out in Kerndulla. You know, it was middle of nowhere. And I did that on a Saturday and a Sunday. And I kind of went into the record store on Monday and handed in my notice and said, do you know, like I could just stay here working in this record store for another kind of year and a half and then all of a sudden or, you know, another couple of years and it'll just go by. Uh, I said, I'd rather just be on the dole and be available for work. So then when I got that short, uh, I could do it. Mm -hmm. And 
uh, yeah, and then I just kind of was able to available to take little jobs. I mean, that was doable back in 2000. Your rent was kind of normal, <laughs> you know, and uh, I could kind of get by on like dole and the dole income, you know, um, and that that works, you know, like I was able to kind of once that short was done, uh, I kind of, you know, you get offered another one. <laughs> And you kind of do that, do that. And then all of a sudden you're kind of an editor, whether you kind of wanted to be or not. But I loved it. Like I loved it right from the get go. But yeah, it just kind of happened by accident. But like, um, yeah. Uh, what percentage of maybe say what was necessary to be an editor? Did you learn in GMIT and then as an assistant edit editor and then on the job? How, what kind of breakdown would you like? I suppose maybe what's behind that question is, if there's someone out there listening to this thinking, oh, I'd love to be an editor, like, do they need to go and do a course? Yeah, I mean, it's, it, it, again, it's kind of difficult to answer. I mean, when, when we did the course, it was 2000 and there was people coming into the course. You know, I remember we were in first year and people were like, or we had like a computer class where they were teaching us to type and like how to turn on a computer. Like this was our editing class and the machines were really old and they were temperamental. And it was like, we spent four weeks trying to learn how to turn on an avid. Like it was ridiculous. You know, whereas now you talk to like a 10 year old and they inherently know what editing is. They do it all the time. Like they, it's whereas when we were a bunch of 18 year olds, we didn't really fully understand what it was. You know, we didn't know what it was because it wasn't part of the the vernacular of mm -hmm. the times. Uh, whereas now it 100 percent is. So I don't think people now going into college necessarily need to know going in going into college a, uh, you know ha what the mechanics of editing or even kind of the theory of it I mean yes to a certain degree but I think what college does provide you with is a group of friends and like uh, people you know people that you can work with and kind of be inspired by and just be people who think along the same lines and you're talking about film you're seeing film and all that really really helps even if it isn't necessarily I'm, you know I'm sure you will learn technical things as well and that's all important but like, you don't really learn any of that until you're under pressure mm -hmm. to do it, you know. So uh, being an assistant editor, you learn um, diligence and, you know, you learn how to organize and how to do things properly and, and hopefully gain a work ethic from that. When you're actually uh, editing something is when you actually only really learn how to properly do it. And that's true today for me, like as it was for me 20 years ago that it's actually the act of doing it and uh, collaborating with new and interesting people. Uh, it, that's kind of, and working on, and being freelance allows me to do that, which is great, you know, and I wouldn't change that. Not everyone can do that, mm -hmm. uh, you know, given given <laughs> uh, the world we live in now, you know, but it's, um, yeah. So I, I would say you, to be an editor, it, it, you only really learn it by doing by it. By doing it, yeah. But the value that you get from me from three years in college is can't be underestimated just because mm -hmm. of that it, it helps you uh, learn the language of cinema. And that's that's all, you know, part of your arsenal. And, and also, I suppose, like and this applies to anyone, be it like if they go and do an acting course or anything like a lot of the times the the first people that you will work with for a couple of years when you leave are your peers that you've been in the same class with. So in terms of going to do a course, the quality of the teachers is almost as important or as important as the quality of the teachers is the various people that are in your year. 
which kind of you've got no control over. Like you're totally t- thrown randomly into a group of people and, you know, they may be interesting artists or they may not or they may uh, j- drop out or whatever. But I suppose, yeah, it's interesting that you can learn a certain amount and you also need to kind of, I suppose, maintain contacts with the people that you've gone to. Sure. I mean, I, I, like I said, I went to Clunmura. Clunmura is a, an art, ca- art campus. And when we were there, there was two years of film we were the second year of film school there wasn't that many uh, art students there maybe in total 130 140 people in the whole campus so like we were having lunch every day with sculpture students you know uh, textile students and some of those people are still like our best friends and like that all is really really helpful mm-hmm. you know because it just kind of you can constantly needle each other it's great <laughs> um, fr- from a practical point of view uh, what does like generally speaking the work of an assistant editor com- consist of is it a case of like organising clips and kind of labelling them and making sure that they're available in the right place for the editor when the editor comes along or is there kind of more to it than that yeah it, it's kind of changed uh, like a lot um, like when I started out it was uh, and I I used to kind of combine assistant editing with editing when I when I was in my early twenties, and like, it, it back then everything was shot on. I was doing it for TV. Everything was shot on Digibeat or Beta, so your or Mini DV. So like your job was loading tapes and kind of like managing the input of data, and it still is that to a certain degree, but that's so much kind of easier now with because it's all digital. But because there's actually so much footage being shot for everything across drama and documentary that it's like you kind of need an assistant who can go through all that and present it and organize it in a way that makes sense for you um you know if it's a drama the assistant's job will be to sync it uh to you know maybe put it into bins for scenes you know uh and then bring in kind of any additional just to keep on top of like all the additional stuff that's coming in music uh, effect, like a lot of uh, assistants will be doing a lot of effects work now as well so on a, like an effects heavy thing you might get an assistant to kind of mock up like the green screen or you know you'd be doing things like that or assistant could be a lot of times it'd be tra- you know in documentary you might be or- helping to organize the transcriptions you know it's it can be kind of a, a lot of different things really okay. um, but mainly your job is to kind of just support the editor and whatever whatever they need you know yeah um, yeah um then uh, going back to maybe the early part of your career were there any sort of jobs that stand out in terms of being like okay that's actually something that i'm really proud of as a piece of work like for you say your own involvement yeah sure i mean i i, I was very lucky to you know i i like I said i was very young doing kind of scully and then i was based in galway which meant that it's a smaller pond so I, like i never really had to do the kind of years working in a post house as a runner or an assistant I, it just it meant that there was more opportunities in Galway I you know I've PCB Galga as well and that kind of helped so you know there was more opportunities there as well so you know I, I ended up kind of getting a lot of broadcast hours under my belt by the time I was 30 I, I had a lot done you know like you know I did like 25 episodes of passion fashion one year <laughs> You know, like uh, some people that I speak to say it's their favorite program that was ever on TG Car. Yes, yeah, yeah. I'm not sure if I did your episode. <laughs> my episode. What are you talking about? I wasn't on Passion Fashion. No. Yeah, I certain my outfit certainly wasn't picked on Passion Fashion. Uh, we won't talk about that. No, I'm not bitter about it at all. Fifteen <laughs> years later or more, whatever it is. Um, so yeah, I mean, I did it did that. I did it. I think for uh, David Power um, about Tommy Turner going to America. Um, 
and you know uh, like that was a real lesson in, in kind of how to make documentary because a lot of the stuff I'd done before then had been kind of entertainment uh, but that was like a proper doc you know so that was that was a big thing Killing Scully was a big you know like I said was a big thing for me when I got it um, because comedy is a different thing altogether as well isn't it yeah yeah very much so um, and you know they, they like doing stuff for Tommy and, and Killing Scully kept me kind of going in my 20s which was great you know um, and yeah they, they were kind of important milestones um uh, yeah, after that, I mean, I did a sh- I did a short for a guy called Kieran Cassidy uh, called "The Last Days of Peter Bergman," um, in like maybe 2012, uh, and like that got into Sundance, and that was you know that was really that was a really kind of big boost, and that I think basically after that allowed me then to navigate into doing features, you know, because okay. that had been a success, and then it, I wasn't um, you know a lot of times trying to get into features is just someone giving you a break, but you kind of need like a push up to us, you know, to do that. Yeah. Um, so you've mentioned features and you've mentioned the Gaelge. Um, before we go on to Colleen Kuhn, which is a phenomenal, phenomenal film. Um, how do you find uh, working in Irish versus working in English? Well, it's funny. I, I, I remember when I was going for the interview to do uh, uh to do passion fashion which was the first thing i ever cut to irish i was really nervous about it because like you know i got like a c in irish and uh, my own my own man's from the graduate i remember kind of trying to like i was hanging out with him for a day or two <laughs> like see how oh, my irish would get me better that you know that didn't go very well but um and i remember just being like really kind of panicky about it and then i was like well there must be someone there with me the whole time if i have any questions about the irish and then you kind of go in and the first thing is like well, it's passion fashion. They're going to be talking about clothes, you know, and it's someone kind of going like, oh, it's Mottlin Bootishy Ords. You're like, okay, I, I can get that. <laughs> and like when you're editing, you don't, like I wouldn't have great confidence in my Irish speaking it. And I kind of tend to freeze, you know, uh, when kind of people are speaking Irish to me. Uh, you know, I don't have that, the confidence to, to do that, like a lot of people. But um, when you're an editor, you, you get to hear it two or three times. And if you're doing a documentary about bicycle races, Chances are they're talking about bicycles, you know, like it's the context. You the really context. know the context. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, and like, uh, so I've never really uh, I've always really enjoyed it, actually, because a lot of what times what had happened is that, you know, I got to work with really kind of in- guys who were doing really interesting things through the Irish language. So, you know, people like Sean O'Coolon, uh, Colin Barry, who will get to like um, Luke McManus, uh, Louise Nienicta, you know, like all these really, really talented directors and they were all doing stuff in Irish and I got to do like a lot of 50 minute TV docs. Uh, you know, Ruin McGann did some drama doc stuff with him that I wouldn't have got to do if it was in English. So like, it served me really, really well and I got to do some really, really interesting things. Um, and, you know, I, I would say to people like that, you know, people get a little, people who don't have great Irish, they kind of get a bit freaked out about it and kind of go like, I couldn't possibly do it, but actually you can and like I've been doing like stuff in the Irish language now for fifteen years, and my Irish is like it's a blessing. Like it's, my Irish has gotten so much better because of yeah. it, and I feel really grateful for that. Um, but no, like I, there's no real difference in terms of it. Like sometimes if you're talking to if you're doing something where there's a lad, uh, you know, from Aaron Moore or the Hills of Kerry who's in his eighties. You know, like you could get 50 Gaelgors and they wouldn't understand what he's saying. You know, <laughs> like so, you know, there there are certain challenges you have mm-hmm. to kind of come across. But like hopefully there's someone I, I did do a doc one time where 
uh, and I won't name names, but it was, uh, I was cutting along and I kind of looked around the room and, and was looking at the producer and director and went, oh, hang on, am I the Irish language expert? <laughs> Nobody else said Irish, have it. And I was kind of going like, uh, lads, you're going to have to get someone to like check this because, you know, like there was no no oversight on yeah, it, you know. Yeah. Uh, so. But it is, it is interesting because if it's something that you kind of maybe feel that you're not completely comfortable with, certainly when it comes to speaking, yeah. that maybe in the editing environment, because like you said, you can play things back a couple of times if you kind of quite miss something or it, it maybe takes away some of the worries, which is interesting. Like, I, I mean, because I know I certainly work with, I've worked with uh, directors on stuff, where they didn't have any Irish at all, which yeah. I found, I, was, I just remember kind of thinking, how can you sort of make a judgment based on like someone's intonation if you don't understand any of the language at all. Yeah. But I think like a lot of people in Ireland have um, a greater level of Irish than maybe they even realize themselves. And there is the challenge. So many people struggle with uh, not being comfortable speaking it. And it's almost like that there are two parts of the brain. There's a part of the brain that is involved in understanding what people say. And a lot of people kind of that seems to be the part of the brain that kind of it lasts longer whereas the the part of the brain involved in constructing sentences in a conversation seems to kind of get rusty much more quickly and uh, then like a lot of people might understand very well a conversation but they're overhearing but as soon as they have to respond it's kind of nervousness combined with rustiness means that they actually can't sure and uh, like i think um part of it is as well is that it's human nature for so say if you and i are talking and you're obviously a fluent gelgor and you know, if you speak to me in Irish and then you see that I'm struggling, you will default back to English. Like, girls do this all the time. They don't mean anything by it. It's actually just human nature to revert into what's most comfortable for the other person. Mm -hmm. And which is totally understandable. So that's why I think things like kind of pop-up girl talks and things are great because it just allows people who don't have the the confidence to, to speak to actually go and kind of like without any judgment and they can kind of just go and just be what it is. Yeah. So like, you know, um, uh, I think it's really, uh, I think it's great. Uh, and I would say to uh, people who are, you know, like there, I, there's a chronic shortage of editors in the country, but there's an absolutely desperate lack of Irish language editors uh, okay. out there. Like, if you give it a go, you will get work. Right, <laughs> yeah, okay. Like that is, and I suppose, like I often say this to actors, like how long would it take you to learn the language or brush up on the language? And if you want to be an editor or an actor, spend a couple of years with a bit of focus on developing the language or revisiting that language. And like then three or four, three or five years down the line, you then have two potential income streams. Yeah. Like, I mean, from a purely clinical point of view, it seems like a no brainer. I am strongly of the opinion that if people do that, they will find themselves falling in love with the language and the culture if they do it anyway, yeah. which is kind of a, a bonus and which is what we all want anyway. But um, yes. not the Grail Girls. Um, so, okay, we'll talk about on Colleen Kuhn. Sure. Um, it must be amazing to see how well it's doing. How, when you started working on it, what was your vibe? Did you kind of think, oh, cool, this is an interesting job? Or did you kind of go, oh, this could be something special? I think we knew early on that it was really, really good. So, um, so they were shooting it in Meath. I was in Galway and it was COVID. It was like, it was it was the first kind of breakout from COVID. So, um, you know, I, I, I couldn't actually travel to Dublin even if I wanted to, you know, at the time. So uh, the footage was kind of coming in bit by bit and you were trying not to get too excited about it because 
you know, I know the soundings from the set were all really good, but like, there's always an element of that mm-hmm. with, with whatever you're working on. And, and you know, sometimes you kind of have, there has to be that for, for people to kind of get to Keep the going. end. Cause but it was the days are so long. Yeah, yeah. exactly. And uh, you know, um, it's the same when, in, in, when you get towards the end of any edit, there's this kind of like mass hysteria that takes over where everyone's going, yeah, it's really good, right? It's really good. Yeah, it's really good. Uh, because you, otherwise you kind of, you know, you have to do it. But um, with this, it was clear pretty early on that it was really, really good. And a film like that, so much of it depends on the, you know, like it's all on Catherine Clinch's shoulders, like this phenomenal young actress. And you could see right from the get-go that like just just even any shot of her like there's so much going on you're kind of you could you knew the audience would project whatever whatever they wanted to onto it because she was giving it all it was yeah. there you know so once you have that you're you know you're in pretty good you know it's good you know your job then is not to mess it up you know uh so that's really what my vibe was is like this is really good don't mess it up <laughs> uh and that like that's what it was because then you know I, I had done some stuff with Andrew Bennett before and he's phenomenal like mm-hmm. so and Carrie Crowley amazing and then you, you know Kate Nafina and Michael Patrick great and it you just knew it was going to work and Cullum I, I, I'd done several documentaries for Cullum over the years you know he, and he's very thoughtful uh, just a great, like any himself and Cleona are great pals of mine and you know like I just knew it would be done well and so when I got the script, it was great. And you're kind of yeah. right, okay, like this will be done well. And, you know, all you're just hoping then is that the girl, is that whoever they've cast can can pull it off. And Catherine Clinch certainly could. You know? uh, yeah, like if it wasn't, if she wasn't available, if they didn't find her, like you kind of think it, it could have gone in so many other different directions in terms of just the success of the film and everything. And like, because like you, like you said, she kind of, She's just so present, and it's not like a lot of what is she? Twelve? Is she twelve? Was she twelve? She was eleven. When eleven. She okay. Died, yeah. Like a lot of a lot she of kid actors um, are sort of encouraged to act more so more than they maybe need to. Hmm. Like, and she's just so just in in the moment. It's phenomenal. And like you said, from as an audience, you're sort of projecting onto her everything that you kind of have inside you. So it's it's a really really kind of emotional experience um practically you said you were getting sent footage was it shot on film i, I know it's another academy ratio you just do academy ratios from now on is that all you know uh, yeah, yeah that's primarily uh it's in my contract <laughs> um yeah no no it was shot uh shot on the sony vegas camera um kate mccullough like you know any film is uh, is like the success of any film is alchemy like it's mm-hmm. just you can't kind of legislate for it but with this, it just had so many kind of like good elements that came together. Like Colin was ready to do this. And yeah. It feels like he's been preparing for that for a while in terms of the shorts that he's done that yeah. have been like, there was the one he did through the T.G. Kahar scheme, uh, Scale, which was uh, based on, on Thaw, which is about the young boys going out in a boat. Yeah. Like, like he's done a number of short films where like the central character or characters are people of that kind of age. And so it's kind of really seems like, like obviously not intentionally preparing for this, but like, everything he's done has been a step towards this. Yeah, it was a natural evolution. And, and you know, you can see that in Catherine's performance as well. Like, Colm, like, never spoke down to her as a child. Like, he mm-hmm. just treated her with, you know, almost as a, as a young, like, like a young adult, I guess. And, and that comes across, you know. So he was ready for it. Kate McCullough is an immense talent. And this, you know, then you get, like, the location. It's like yeah. that, that they found that house and it was largely just as it was. 
you know, like it hadn't been hadn't been done up in, in forty years through some like deathbed wish of the person who owned it, who said, "Don't do up my house." Like wow. when the mother died, <laughs> so like it's been the same since the since the eighties. Um, you know, so great production design, and then just the weather. Like you know, we shot in September, and yet it feels like this glorious summer. So yeah. like the leaves hadn't started to fall. It feels like exactly all of my summers of my youth yeah. feel in my memory. I don't remember. You kind of remember a couple of days where it was maybe lashing rain, but generally the summertime you think, oh yeah, I was out playing football and it was sun sunny and like the sun was spitting the stones. Yeah, they're the days you remember. Yeah, and yeah. that's the film kind of gets that, you know. So, you know, it, it's it was total like just kind of good fortune, you know. And then even even for us in post production, it was you know the lockdown happened like almost like two days after we finished filming. So, you know, it was this is lockdown this is number two, was it? Yeah, it was like November twenty twenty, um, yeah. and that was just what me and Colm did. You know, like we it was all done over zoom um so i would edit on my uh, edit suite send the signal into my laptop uh, uh, over zoom column was a little like tiny box in a corner of my uh room and uh like you like, actually spend it, he's watching you sleep and everything and he's saying why is john not working it's three o'clock in the morning he should be editing it was a little bit of that yeah we and then sometimes like because we both have young kids uh, which you know again kind of suited us as well that we could both be home and you know, like uh, sometimes Colm's kids would be upstairs and he'd have to kind of pretend he wasn't there. <laughs> it would be super quiet. And uh, yeah, and I would, I'd be the same, just kind of going, oh, they don't realize that I'm in here working. And, you know, um, but yeah, and it, it, it just was kind of worked out really well. And we like Colm and I met for lunch in December 2019 to talk about it. And then we didn't see each other again until March 2021 for like two, we did two, two or three days together in, uh, in, uh, outer limits just to finish the film but so there were like little tweaks and stuff was it or yeah just like a final okay. final final pass so that we wanted to be in the same room to do it but even yeah. then like I had to get a letter a special letter of dispensation I was the only person staying in, in uh, juries in Ballsbridge <laughs> it was very surreal like me and the staff uh, and, and I, I had like a letter I am an essential worker yeah yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah it was uh, yeah it was great you know um, um, the like you said, there are many elements in that film that come together and make it what it is. One of the elements that's super, super strong and so powerful in telling the moments, the telling the story in the moments between the dialogue is the music. Mm. Um, when you're editing something, say a drama or this, this film in particular, do you use temp music? Do you edit to just kind of silence and allow the composer to come in? Stephen Rennix did the music in yeah. this case, didn't he? Like, do you kind of leave the slate blank for him do you put in some stuff so yourself and Cullum can kind of see the direction this going or how what's your approach yeah well with this film we very much didn't want to have too much and and we really really didn't edit to music a huge amount there are certain sequences that needed it um you know there's a certain there's two montages mm -hmm. to two particular tracks so one of them was recorded by Carrie Crowley that was always going to be that and then the other piece of music was a piece Cullum had in mind right from the start and that that was always kind of in there. So that was cut to the music a little bit, but not really like it. it I, I don't generally try to cut to kind of like, uh, I tend if you, I, I tend to believe that if you cut kind of off the rhythm of music, it's kind of better mm -hmm. that, uh, I don't know if that makes sense, but it kind of does. Um, and then there was little bits where we added little bits of score here and there. We tried not to do 
the, the danger is if you use too much temp music is that you become attached to the temp music and then the the composer can never do something good enough because it's not quite the same. Yeah, but then yeah. Stephen Ranks is Stephen Ranks. So like, you know, that was never really going to be a concern for us. But um, it is a thing. Like, it's a noted problem uh, that, say, like, it's why a lot of the big blockbuster movies, the music sound, you, you, like, when's the last time you heard a big movie where you could, th- like, hum the theme tune? It doesn't happen anymore because everyone just uses, like, a, you know, like a, the Marvel soundtrack to something and they just lash that in as temp and then they kind of go, oh, I kind of like what was, that was, just, just do something like that. Yeah. So they end up just kind of being facsimiles of, of each other. And that's, you know, so it might sound a bit like the, like maybe, maybe the Born Identity is like the last one I can probably think of that sounded a little bit unique. And then everything after that's kind of the same, you know? Look, there's no Indiana, you don't never hear Indiana jo- like music like in Indiana Jones anymore. Oh, but we will next June or July when number five comes out. Yes, Although I'm referring to it as number four. Yeah, I don't bother going on that one. <laughs> Um, let's see. Uh, but anyways, yeah, sorry, that was the uh, went off on a tangent there. But you get the idea, yes. Um. So we sort of touched on uh, the kind of um, someone who maybe might want to get into editing. That you know there are benefits to doing a course, but there's also a lot you can learn, or a lot you have to learn by just doing it. Um. Is there anything else you'd say to any aspiring young editors out there? And we've also actually touched on uh, the Irish language. Like, you know, there are opportunities available there. And especially, I suppose, if you're a younger editor, you maybe are not so long out of school, so your Irish is not quite so rusty. Um, any other tips? Yeah, I mean, it's kind of a funny one. Um, like, because of the rental crisis and everything, it's, it's, it's very hard not to... It's very hard for, for editors starting out now because it's really, really difficult. So, And there is a gap in the market because of it. So, I mean, my theory is that a lot of people are leaving school uh, or leaving college and then getting jobs working for, you know, they're doing like four-minute kind of content for ad agencies and things like that because everyone needs content. And what happens is that people are getting very used to doing that kind of four-minute thing, but they don't really know how to make, you know, RT, Teach Car aren't making 27-minute programs anymore. So then it's very difficult to go from four minutes to 50 and very, very difficult to go from 50, like the jump from 50 to 74 or 80 is really, really difficult. And uh, so you've got people kind of making like four minute things, but not really making anything kind of longer than that. And then that jump is very difficult. And then there's people kind of making, there's lots of people making lots of shorts and it's very difficult to kind of get a funded short to edit one of those. Um, so it's tricky. I mean, what I would say is like, if you're in college, you know, get together with the people you're in college with and just try and keep making stuff. And, you know, um, you don't have to... Like Pierce Ryan gave this advice to some panel we were on. He might have done on this show as well, where he, he kind of said, like, don't show the world how much of a genius... You don't need to show the world how you became a genius. You know, like, you, you should have a web presence. That's, like, really important. You know, if anytime anyone ever rings me about a job, like, as I'm talking to them, I'm typing up who they are and see, see what they've done so that I know who I'm talking to. So it's important to have a web presence. But you don't need to put every little thing on there because, like, first impressions matter. I say that as someone who hasn't updated my show reel in about five years, but nevertheless, <laughs> nevertheless, it does matter. Um, you know, so like, but yeah, actually, a photographer told me, uh, Colm Hogan told me, in terms of like posting photographs or putting photographs on a website or whatever, he said, don't put anything up that you're not totally happy with. Yeah. Don't like, don't put up mediocre work. Just put up the stuff that you're, yeah. I used to be guilty of that. My first website, uh, when I first got my website up and running, I was like, I'm going to put everything I ever made on this. 
do you know because it's like it, it, it was great for me because it was like oh here it exists someplace mm-hmm. but actually it the after a while it just gets kind of boring people just want to see the top five things yeah. that they can take away really quickly you know um so yeah i'd say that um just keep kind of doing doing stuff and keep collaborating with people and um you know like all that stuff will come back to you you know like the uh of all the all the feature features i ended up being offered in my kind of 30s were a lot of them came from people who had were either directors or producers of shorts i met in the 20 in my in my early 20s yeah and people i might not have talked to in years and years but you know like if you work with those producers those producers in 10 years time will be the ones making the films and hopefully they'll bring you with you you know yeah. so like that's um also don't be an ass you know like that's really really important and like and actually that's very very important because you know if you want to for me if i was hiring an assistant what the main thing i ask for is like i'm going to be with this person for like you know months and months i want them to kind of be a nice person to be around i also want them to not like i want them to have their own initiative and i you know if you're an editor your job is to give them and give them opportunities to show that initiative but you also don't want them to kind of like just not do what they're supposed to do you know so like or do it with an attitude yeah you just want the them, wrong attitude you know exactly yeah. yeah so you just don't be an ass it's like super important um and also a lot of times people remember you know when, so, when a lot of times you'll get a break because you know, look is the most important thing in a, any of this mm-hmm. and like a lot of times you'll get a break because you're the last person that that person saw so you know like, uh, like that's honestly it it's like so be out there don't just stay in your room. Kind of, go yeah. See the whole like of the go, moon. go, go see films. Go to the theater. Like, yeah. you know, go to launches. Like, just be around. It's it's so true though. Like that's yeah. because um, was it William Goldman who said this is the industry in which nobody knows anything. Yeah. So like like you said, if you're the last person that, that someone saw, if you're in their brain for some reason, yeah, there's more chances of yeah. Because it, it's it's like if so, someone rings me looking for uh, an assistant, you know, I might, I might get like a message from another editor going, "Is there any? Do you know if any assistants are available?" it's like it's always in a blind panic because they need someone next week so it's the first person i think of and then they go okay i'll try that person yeah. you know uh, it's not you, you don't have time to kind of go well, look i'm gonna go to my pile of cvs you know yeah. you just think so like it all it's that all yeah so just be out there and kind of see things and you know you don't have to be in the pub smoking fags all the time <laughs> you can't be area. smoking fags yeah. in a pub these days john well yes yeah um okay so that's that's all very good advice i also thought as an editor like you see everything um so i kind of think that you might be someone who would also have advice for directors or actors because i'm sure directors have come in to you saying i want you to edit this thing and you're looking at you kind of going oh fuck why didn't you give me x y or z or oh my god thank god you did this thing which makes my job way easier sure okay um yeah i mean one thing that that springs to mind maybe is that like uh a lot of time a lot of times filmmaking isn't just high notes if you don't have like you know so high notes are like big dramatic crane shots or you know drone shots if you make a film that's just all that the notes you need the low notes so that the high notes stand out so like there's nothing wrong with like not moving the camera (laughs) and just getting shots of static things you know like it's it's those little like details matter you know and that applies for even say on Colin Cune, if you notice, there's lots of little details around, like, uh, shot around the farm. And that, that comes from Colm's documentary background. And Kate's, Kate's background as well is in documentary too. And, like, and mine, obviously. So, like, that's 
seeing value in the little details because those collectively will make something that's beautiful. So uh, that'll be one thing. Um, yeah, uh, in terms of actors, I mean, uh, <laughs> I mean, it's kind of hard to say. You know, like I, I, I think there's, I think there's an unwritten kind of trust between editors and, and actors that. You know, but I, you're not going to try to make us look stupid. Yeah, you know, like yeah. The, the editor, their job is to kind of like filter it down to the best possible version. Mm -hmm. So like there are things you could say to editors, but like I don't think it's fair. <laughs> you know, like uh, it's, I'm, um, not, I'm not checking out oh, that yeah, question, no, yeah. but I think, I think there has to be like... Uh, oh yeah, uh, so I suppose rather than the kind of the negative side, like the positive side um, of what an actor could do, like... Um, say you worked on the trial of the century with tom von lawler in it sure i imagine that i've met that man and he is one of the nicest men in the entire world and he's a phenomenal actor and i imagine that editing his performances was probably a pleasure it may not have been if it wasn't i'm sure you won't say uh but um like i imagine that actors like like him possibly offer you as much as you need be it like variety between takes um, while still maintaining continuity that's usable or else even I was kind of thinking so basically I came up with a question and I thought what might an answer be and one answer I thought might be is like the idea of a, an actor sort of being still and in the moment and in the character for a couple of moments before the camera rolls or before the scene starts because sure. I kind of feel that sometimes those little moments might get stolen for a reaction to something or a non-reaction to something when in fact the actor wasn't necessarily even acting because the scene hadn't technically yeah. started. Yeah, that you know that's absolutely a fair point. Like, yeah, we would often steal things from the from the top of the shots or the end of shots, um, that to kind of help it out. I would also say as well, it really helps when you know, and Tom is a really good example of it, someone who gives uh, you everything in when they're on the reverses as well, mm -hmm. because that that helps. Um, it helps the performance of the of the person, you know, the, of the shot that you're actually taking. So, um, that all you know, like that it's really important for actors to be present for all of the takes, even if they're not actually on, on the shot, you know, and uh, yeah, that would go a long way. And, and also, yeah, that to, just to be ready, you know, like that, you know, that it's not, um, you're not, you're not trying to save the performance, trying to, you're trying to kind of like put together the best elements of it. Like if, if someone maybe goes in not knowing their lines as well as they should, yeah. then you're possibly going to have to take a bit, going to have to take a bit from this this take and then add on a bit from another take and another take and another take and kind of piece together a full performance when in fact, best case scenario is they go in there, they're comfortable, they know what they're doing and they give you different variations between takes, which means that you have got a variety of options. Yeah, the best actors can do that. You know, they, they can give you a great, great performance in, in all the takes and there's slight variations in each of them that, that you know, elevate it in different ways and mm -hmm. can pull it in, in, in different directions. And then the great one, like, um, Pat Short, unbelievably good at being the same in every, like, you know, for, for someone who's like a, a comedic actor, he, he like constantly got his marks exactly right. And it could be totally different in terms of like, he, you know, his, per, he, he could be bigger or wilder and like he could, you know, it would go the range of comedic tone, but he would always get the marks exactly right as to where he would be 
and it was always the continuity was always perfect, even if he was being like bigger and louder in different ones. It was ama- like amazing, you know. Um, I don't mean to pick it's just pick out Pat, but like yeah, that's just someone who springs to mind. It was just uh, incredible. Yeah, that's all. Um, all very useful insight. Thank you yeah. very much. Um, how do you get work? This is not. This is not a. How do you get work? <laughs> um, like, is it all based upon people you've worked with before and contacts in the industry, or do you have to pitch for jobs? No, I. Um, from from early on, it's always been kind of like, oh, you did this, will will, will you do that? Um, and or I saw this thing that you cooked. Will you? Can you do this? Um, you know, it, and it's kind of always relatively always worked out. Um, you know, like I have been unemployed for times, uh, but yeah, it's um, I've n- I've never I've like never really had to go for an interview for for anything, but um, I, I kind of just do the work. You know, I, I judge a job on kind of people who are doing it, mm-hmm. and if I like them, and then we kind of just go with it, and it's worked out okay for me so far. Um, and during the times where you're not working or you're waiting for a job to come along, like um. Do you find those times challenging? Like, do you, do you ever kind of, because I kind of feel like almost anyone who works in this industry, be they actors or directors or whatever, like if you're applying for funding to do something or if you're doing auditions or whatever, there's a lot of rejection or a lot of uncertainty. And how, yeah, how do you I kind of I think it's slightly different for, um, for, say, you know, um, people in the technical crafts. So like editing, camera people, sound, sound department, production design, uh, I think those jobs are always need to be filled. Like there's, there's some like it, it's a craft. So like there's kind of there will always be. You'd hope. I mean, there's, there's always someone's always going to be kind of. You're not the one who's applying to make it happen. You're applying to get on that gig that is already happening. So, um, it's different from being like a director. Like a, I, I compared. I think directing. I don't know how people do it to be honest. Uh, like. The, the years and years of put, putting years of work into something and then it just falling apart. It's like I compare it to, um, like it's like you're uh, applying for planning permission all the time. Like you're trying to build this house and you have this architect designed house and and you think it's going to be the best house ever made. Yeah, and then it's like oh it's it's on an Indian burial ground. Why don't you like build a turret on it? Uh, why don't you do this and. You know, you spend years doing that, and at the end of it, you hope if it ever does get that you make to get to build the house, that it's the same as what you originally planned. Whereas for editing and camera people, like you can still be uh, like a master craftsman, as it were. But you, you can you can pick up the blocks and get fucking building. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like, so by the time it gets to you, you're you're the it's happening. Okay. Yeah. So I mean, I'm I don't know if I'm making sense here, but like it, it's. But also, I suppose it's it's that combined with the fact that you've got you've got kind of got a track record of having built houses exactly behind yeah. you, uh, and, and if that house isn't getting built, somebody else might need like their outhouse built <laughs> for like a week. You know what I mean? So uh, I'm really going with this analogy. <laughs> yeah. um, uh, and so, so the question is, like, yeah, I, I, you don't really have to deal with rejection in the same way that actors or directors or producers do, because you're not the one applying for funding okay. is the answer yeah, yeah. Okay. but you might still feel a personal rejection if you didn't get to work on something that you wanted to do or they went with somebody else you know but at the end of the day you can kind of just go and move on to the next thing and kind of forget about it you know 
And um, has your way of working changed with uh, COVID? Like, do you do, do you yeah, work from I home? Live, Have you always wor- done some work from home? Uh, or? I moved, I lived in Dublin for 10 years and then I moved back west during COVID um, for a variety of reasons. And so now I do a lot of work remotely um, from my base in Galway. And yeah, it's kind of getting away with it so far anyways. And uh, yeah, it's kind of better quality of life. Like, so I'm kind of happy to be doing it, mm-hmm. you know. Um, and I think it was kind of coming, I think it was going in that direction anyways, but it certainly is a lot easier to have that conversation about remote working now. So, you know, you can kind of do, even even in high pressure jobs, you can do three three days at home, two days up, you yeah. know, uh, yeah. and it, it all works out. Um, yeah, and also just, it kind of makes sense, just the fact, the fact, the fact is, it's very expensive to live in, in Dublin. So a lot of directors are, and producers are, you know, living down the country now as well. So they're only too happy to kind of, for you to be, for them not to have to go to Dublin themselves as well, you know? So, um, yeah, no, we'll, we'll see. So it has changed in that regard, but it's kind of changed for everyone, I think, a yeah. little bit. Yeah, I think it's kind of going back a little bit now, but yeah, same way. So it's, I suppose it's nice that the option seems more, it's more on the table now as a, I know I can remotely work from home as an editor and like, unless, I suppose, unless in the scenario where you, the director wants to be sitting over your shoulder watching everything you do day after day. Yeah, but there are technical solutions to that as well, you know, like, I mean, I, I cut a short a couple of weeks ago where I didn't. I never met the director. She, she, we were doing it. She was in a room in Bray and was all. She was just a little, again, a little circle in the, in the on my computer, you know. And it was fine, you know. And it's all, you, you know, there are technological solutions to to all those things. So, yeah. Cool. Well, uh, John, thanks a million for coming in for the chat. Um, yeah. North Circular, which we were talking about earlier on, is currently in cinemas as we speak. It was released on the set the second of December. Um, yeah, go see it. Great, great it, crack. Yeah, it's a really, really enjoyable documentary. Uh, this week it is screening in the Savoy, the Lighthouse, the IFI, the IMC in Boomera, and Queens in Belfast, as well as in London. Um, and from the 9th, it's going to be in the Paulos in Galway and the Gate Multiplex in Cork. And according to, I think it's the Twitter, the Twitter page, other places, TBC. Yes, uh, more to be announced, I think. Yes. Great. I'm unaware of the details. But <laughs> okay. And also, um, if you're listening to this podcast and you haven't seen on Colleen Kuhn during the six-ish months it was in the cinemas, um, it is available to watch online. Uh, uh, I think it's available on YouTube and a number Google of those. Google Play yeah. and okay. yes, yeah, Apple TV and all that. Yeah. So order it, sit down, get a box of Kleenex, turn off your phone and just let the 1980s wash over you. Yeah, John, thanks a million for being the Yeah, cheers. That was great. Thanks.